in Jesus Christ, who they had received as Lord, rooted in him. And we're working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. The series is called Colossians, Christ and Christ Alone. Colossae is a church in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. Paul had never actually been there, or at least we don't have a record of his visiting there. And he writes to them and he says he feels one with them in the spirit, but not with them in body, because he's writing from prison. And he's writing to encourage the church and also to warn them against those who would try and say that new, the new Christians in Colossae needed something extra for salvation, something as well as Jesus Christ to lead a full life, something else as well as Jesus Christ for their future hope. And he writes to assure them of the supremacy and the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus that they have heard. It is Christ and Christ alone. And verse 6 and 7 actually form the centre of Paul's letter. This is where the body of the letter begins. This is what he's wanting to encourage the church about. And in verse 6, Paul starts this section with the word therefore, or so then. All that's gone before is leading to this point. His introduction where he had placed the church's identity and address in Christ where he had given thanks for their faith and love and prayed for them to grow in their knowing of God's will and living in a way that pleased God. And the wonderful affirmation and him focusing on the person of Jesus, on the wonder and sufficiency of his life, his death and his resurrection. And then stopping also to talk of his own, Paul's own passion, his own work for Christ, and his suffering for the gospel. And now because of all that, he turns and he encourages the Colossians to walk in Christ and warns them against false teachers who would try and drag them away from that, drag them back into captivity. Therefore, he says, since you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Epaphras had proclaimed the gospel to them. They had come to understand it. They had received it, and they had committed themselves to it. Jesus Christ as Lord is the most ancient confession of the church. It's acknowledging Jesus. God's anointed one, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, as king, as king of their lives, as the one who they will follow. In the Roman Lord, sorry, in the Roman world, the affirmation was Caesar is Lord, that the Roman emperor ruled, that his will was what guided people's lives. But for Christians, it is different. They and we acknowledge that Jesus is king. They and we are citizens of his kingdom. They and we live by his reign. 
It's a confession that is more than that as well. You see, the word Lord or the Greek word kurios is used in the Septuagint. That's the uh, first uh, century BC Greek translation of the New Testament to translate Lord in capital letters. And when Lord is written in capital letters in the Hebrew Bible, it's the Jews using it in replacement for the name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. And they do that so they won't accidentally say that name in vain. They will say, the Lord, in capitals, kurios. So this is not only a confession that Jesus is king, it's also an acknowledgement of the divine nature of Jesus. As Paul will say in verse 9, in Christ the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form. You know, that confession of Jesus as king and the divine nature of Jesus is at the core of the message that they and we have received. It's what calls us and them, them and us, to live that out in Christ. And then Paul uses a series of metaphors to fill out what it means to live or walk in Christ. And the first one is an agricultural one, rooted in Christ. That we might find our foundations in the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. Christ who lived who died and was raised to life again. Like Kahika, that northernmost Pahutakawa, it's something solid for the whole of life, where we can get our sustenance from, something that provides a solid base for who we are and how we live, despite life's storms and difficulties. As Paul had found, you know, as Paul had found in Jesus amidst his suffering. And you'd think that Paul would carry on with this agricultural metaphor, but he unashamedly mixes his metaphors. He moves on to an architectural metaphor, to be built up in him. You might expect it to be that we might grow in him from the roots. That makes sense, doesn't it? We get that, but he doesn't. He, pick, he changes his metaphors, and he um, uses one of building. And it picks up the sort of corporate nature of the church. As it says in First Peter, we are living stones being built together into the dwelling place of God. We are the new temple in which Christ dwells. So he picks up that corporate nature. You know, um, we have a foundation in Jesus Christ, but we build on that together and are built together. Remember in his thanksgiving for Colossae, Paul had talked of their faith in Christ and their love for all God's people, springing from the hope that was stored up in heaven. You know, that growing from Christ uh, is very much based in our corporate life, our love for one another. And then he moves on to what Scott McKnight says is a judicial metaphor, and that's one that we might miss, that we are strengthened by what we have been taught. The contents of the gospel that tell us about Jesus Christ is the basis on which we can live, and we can be strengthened by that. You know, we have assurance because of what we've been taught. We have assurance because, you know, we know we can trust God, 
because God keeps his promises, because we've seen that in the gospel. N.T. Wright sums it up as it confer- it's confirmed and settled like a legal document, you know? Uh, we have confidence in Christ. We have been justified and set right. It's a done deal. It's been signed off on. And that strengthens us and encourages us. Finally, overflowing with thanksgiving. And the metaphor here is of a cup of wine brimming over the top. It's one of festivities and celebration. In Christ and what Christ has done for us, we have a joy in life. You know, it's something that's uh, amazing and wonderful and is, is just should be full of rejoicing. And wine is also an image of the Spirit in the Scriptures. And it picks up the, the idea that Jesus talked about in John's Gospel of the fact that um, all who come to him and receive him, that a spring of living water would flow from within them and would bubble up and overflow. You know? That's the over, we are overflowing with the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And with these mixed metaphors, Paul sort of sums up the fullness of the Christian life. It picks up what Paul had prayed for the Colossians as his opening prayer as well, that they would produce fruit and grow and be strengthened by the Spirit and rejoice with thanksgiving. It's a great summary of what it means to walk in Christ for us today as well as for them. And then Paul turns and he warns them about those who would try and take them captive to a human philosophy, a hollow and deceptive or fake hope, like some cheap internet scam, you know? And of course, again, we come up again with the question, well, who are Paul's opponents in Colossae? Who's he talking about? Is Paul anti all types of philosophy? You know, but we know from the book of Acts that Paul is quite at home in places like Athens, in actual fact, um, debating and, and, you know, working through philosophy with, with the philosophers. What are the elemental spiritual forces? You know, are they evil spirits or the spirit of this age and human structures or just talking about doing things in, in a physical way without a sort of sense of being in the spirit? And I feel that maybe all those sorts of things are very much part of that, that interesting saying there. You know, the human structures and traditions as well as dark forces. But it seems as we read through the text that Paul has the Judaizers in mind here. Okay? Judaizers were Jewish Christians who wanted Gentile Christians, when they came to Christ, to conform to the Jewish religious system. And this is borne out in the two warnings that Paul gives in this passage. His focus in verse 9 to 12 on circumcision. And then in verse 16 and onwards with the Jewish ritual laws around food and special days. Uh, And we know that this had caused a lot of trouble in Galatia uh, because we've got the book to Galatians. And that wasn't too far from Colossae. So Paul's fear is that these empty ideas, you know, wanting people to conform to these very human, now human things which have been fulfilled in Christ, causing trouble here as well. And Paul addresses these things in two ways. Firstly, he puts Jesus over and against human traditions. 
In Christ, he says, the fullness of the deity dwelt, making Jesus so much more superior to the traditions of man. So why then, says Paul, should we still ask Gentile Christians to be circumcised? Circumcision, of course, was a sign of Jews from birth being part of God's covenant people. It was an outward sign of being part of those people. Why, says Paul, should we want to muck around with cutting off small parts of the body, ouch, (laughs) when in our baptism in Christ the whole of our old sinful self has been cut off, has been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ as new creations. It's God, not human endeavour, that's done that. Even in the Old Testament, there was a longing for something more than just that outward sign. There was a longing for an inward sign, a change at the very core of our being, a new heart. And in many places in Scripture, that is is talked of as being a circumcision of the heart, a term which Paul picks up in Romans chapter 2 to talk of true circumcision, not done on the outside by human hands, but by the Spirit. That's Romans 2, 25 to 29. And then Paul moves on to talk of what Christ has done for us by his circumcision, uh, sorry, by his crucifixion and resurrection. Boy, I get that wrong. (laughs) He, He does it in a way which shows clearly also the irony of the cross, the upside down nature of his kingdom. Because you see, in crucifying Jesus, the authorities, the the systems and structures of this world thought that they had defeated Jesus. But Paul here, talking about the crucifixion, uses the language of a king and his triumphant victory to argue that Jesus and the cross is sufficient for us. While we were dead, because of his death, he made us alive again. He forgave our sins, cancelling the charge of indebtedness which stood against and condemned us. And Paul here uses the idea of the titulus, the list of charges which were nailed above a criminal on the cross so that everybody knew what they had done wrong. But here, instead of it being our condemnation, they are nailed to the cross and we are released and set You know, they are nailed there because the innocent one, Jesus, the King of the Jews, died in our place. So it's taken away. And its power and the spiritual powers behind, behind that have been disarmed and made us publical spectacle of and triumphed over. And the image here comes from the victory parades of a Roman emperor. Because you see, if you were defeated by the Romans, what would happen is that all the wealth that you had had, all the, the, the um, armor of your soldiers, uh, all your children, all your household would be paraded through the streets and mocked and laughed at because you had, the Roman emperor had victory over those things. And they would end in the enemy being crucified. And so Paul picks that up and says, you know, in Christ's death, 
he's done that to the hollow philosophies of humanity, to the structures and elemental spirits and powers of this world. He's done that to our sin. He's defeated it. He then moves on to give his second warning in verse 16 to 19. Don't let people put you down because of what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Uh, new moon festivals uh, have uh, and special religious days also probably tie in uh, with the Jewish sacrificial system. So again, which Christ paid the price once and for all. So again, Paul has the Judaizers in mind who are wanting Gentile Christians to observe the ritual laws of the Torah. And again, Paul says, why? Why bother with these things? Because they were foreshadows. They were things that pointed us to a greater reality. And of course, in Jesus' coming, that is the reality that they were pointing to. You know, forgiveness of sin, being put right with God, all those things are there. The sacrifice of Christ once and for all for the forgiveness of sins that would reconcile us to God. So why muck around with these, all these other things that were just foreshadows when the real thing has come? Golly, I'm just thinking here, that's an old Coke ad, isn't it? It's the real thing. Well, that was the ad. <laughs> I'm not saying it is, but Christ is the real thing. And Paul goes on to talk about people uh, to be weary of. He speaks of people who have a false humility. Humility, not humility. Humidity. No, humility, not humidity. Humility, humility right? Yep, I see, yep. Not humidity. Not people who are hot. People who are, have a false humility. Yeah, I, I just, we'll just stop there. <laughs> and some of these early false teachers practiced a sort of type of extreme asceticism. You know, they, the, on the surface, that, that looked spiritual. You know, but that it was more seen as a way of trying to appease God outside of what Christ had done. The worship of angels is a hard one for us to get our heads around. Uh, angel worship may have been part of the pagan worship in the area in which uh, Colossae was. You'll remember when we looked at Revelation that twice John has to be reminded not to worship the angel who was showing him what was, had happened, but only to worship God. And that, that was seen as a polemic against angel worship in the area around um, the seven churches. And Colossae is in that area. Um, but it also, it, uh, also, other scholars suggest that part of what they were talking about was that these false teachers may have focused on angels and praying and asking angels to come and help them. And praying to them rather than trusting and praying to Jesus. He also warns about people who focus on their dreams and their visions, the things that they have seen, recounting them in great detail. Uh, you know, their focus is on these things, not necessarily on Christ. And such people can try and pull us away from Jesus. Paul says, they are not connected to the head in Christ. Their focus is on puffing themselves up rather than Christ, whose focus is the body. 
being brought together, rooted, built up, strengthened, and overflowing in thanksgiving. Well, how does this apply to us today? Well, two ways. Firstly, the encouragement uh, to, just as we've received Jesus Christ as Lord, to continue to live in him, to have confidence and hope and find unity and joy in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, in Christ and Christ alone. Allow that to be the focus, the foundation, the guide and the joy of our lives. Now, one of the good things is in Colossians, as we go on, Paul has some practical outworkings of that, which is helpful for us. Secondly, the same warning here uh, applies to us as it does to the church at Colossae. It's easy for us to be moved away from Christ to man-made religious things, to thinking that our traditions and the things that we do are more important or equally as important as Jesus. And, you know, that we need to be weary of any form of Christ plus. Ritual and traditions and expressions of faith, spiritual disciplines can be helpful as long as they focus us on Jesus. We also still need to be careful in listening to people who might lead us away from Jesus. And they might even sound really spiritual and, uh, you know, wow. But if the focus isn't Christ, it's challenging. Uh, it's interesting, while I was preparing this message, uh, on Monday I went for a walk around the Hartier River Loop. And a man stopped me. Uh, I was in the middle of photographing. Uh, oh, you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> But the man, a man stopped me uh, and asked me if I was a Christian. When I said yes, he started telling me about all these visions that he had and, and the fact that he has stopped work because Jesus is coming soon, you know, um, and, and just was telling me about these visions that he was having. And um, I, I stopped and I listened to him politely. And in the end, I had to go because I had an appointment. Um, and I said, thank you, and, and I left, and I started to weigh what he had said, and I realized his focus was on what he had experienced, and it wasn't an actual fact on Jesus. And I started to sort of weigh what he had said, and that's, a, you know, that's what Scripture tells us we should do with these sorts of experiences. We should weigh them against Scripture. And I realized a lot of what he was talking did not conform to Scripture. It was a different picture of Jesus than you find in the Gospels. You know, and we actually need to learn to evaluate what we hear in light of Christ. In light of the Gospel of Jesus that we have been taught. That has been passed on to us by people like Paul and his epistles and the Gospel writers. We uh, started with the illustration of the Pahutakawa at the northernmost point of New Zealand, Kahika, the survivor, that was rooted firmly on a rock that grew even in the most adverse of conditions. And I thought it was a great illustration, but actually I was a little bit reluctant to use it because the plaque said that no one remembers the tree ever flowering. And I thought, you know, it's a, it's a great 
illustration of both the encouragement to be rooted in Christ, but also uh, the danger that if we're not rooted in Christ, if our foundations are not in, you know, the, the gospel truth of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, that just maybe, you know, um, our lives won't flourish and flower as well. You know, we need to put our roots deeply down in Jesus to find a fruitful and full life. It's only when we find ourselves rooted and being built up together in Christ and being strengthened by what we've taught and overflowing with thanksgiving from what God has done for us in Christ that we'll find that life blooms and grows even in those hard places. That it's Christ and Christ alone. Amen. And as a way of